Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome again to Daily Dot Differently. Jeremy Kalmanowski with you, learning today, Tractate Yivamot, page Kaf Gimel, 423. Our conversation continues from yesterday about the scope of the uh, incest prohibitions. If a person, let's call him Ruvain, has a, uh, clearly his sister, his full sister, Sarah, that is a complete incest prohibition, and if they had sex, that would, that would certainly be a major violation. How about half-sisters? And we go on and talk about half-sisters, his father's daughter, from various kinds of relationships and problematic relationships, uh, leave intact the incest prohibition, this conversation between the sages and Rabbi Yossi Barab uh, Yehuda. But one thing that is not in the incest prohibition uh, and relates also to the question of Leverite marriage is one's, uh, one's child from a, a man's child from a, a slave woman or a non-Jewish woman. As it relates to incest prohibition, if a, if a man died childless, uh, his widow is still subject to, uh, to yibum, to Leverite marriage, but if that same man had had an illegitimate child with a slave woman or a non-Jewish woman, that does not free his former wife. Let's say Ruvain is the man, Sarah is the wife, and Ruvain had uh, a child with a non-Jewish woman, Sarah, is still subject to the Leverite marriage because, for reasons that we've uh, talked about and come as no surprise to you, uh, somebody uh, who is not uh, Jewish is not technically related in halachic terms to a Jewish person. So there is no uh, paternity relationship, at least in halachic terms, between Reuven and his child with a non-Jewish woman. In the course of the in the course of the uh, uh, conversation about incest, we learn that. Uh, a half-sister from that relationship, should there be such a case, let's say Ruvain has a, a legitimate son, Shimon, and he also has an illegitimate daughter from a, a slave woman or a non-Jewish woman, um, should Shimon sleep with that other girl, uh, that would actually not be a technical incest prohibition uh, according to Halakha, for the reason that we said, that even though you and I might know there is a biological DNA relationship, uh, Halakha does not recognize such a relationship. In the course of having this conversation, we come upon uh, the articulation of one of the well-known elements of Jewish law, which is very relevant for uh, not all, all Jews, but especially non, non-Orthodox Jews nowadays, and that's the question of matrilineality, Jewish descent being passed matrilineally. As you could tell through a simple reading of the Bible, a uh, simple reading meaning unamplified by what you know from normative Jewish practice at a later date, it's perfectly obvious, reading the Torah, that uh, that there's no conversion process. You can't ever read anywhere in the Bible of somebody going through a ritual to convert. That is a, a creation of the rabbinic period. And when David and Solomon and Judah and any number of people uh, in the Torah, Shimshon, marry non-Jewish women, the children that they have are just assimilated into the Jewish community, uh, and it would appear that the Bible, I don't think this is terribly surprising, 
in, in Bible times, it was a patrilineal, and, and communities uh, were defined by patriarchs, and the Jewish status, you know, was also was also considered patriarchal. And in fact, one of the reasons why one is not supposed to marry out uh, is the fear that uh, that when uh, when Jewish women would go live with their husbands' families, they would essentially just uh, assimilate into non-Israelite society, and they wouldn't be wouldn't be Jewish anymore at all. I'm no expert in this, but from what I read, especially through a, uh, a scholar called Shia Cohen in a book called The Beginnings of Jewishness, uh, he writes that there's no evidence that the practice in Israelite society or Jew Jewish society was any different even through temple times. Josephus and other Second Temple Jewish writings don't appear to know anything of matrilineality, that the Jewish status of, uh, of a child which would follow its mother. But by the rabbinic period, it's the dominant, uh, the dominant rule in Jewish life. And though there are some arguments about it around the margins, um, it's pretty clear that this was the pervasive view of the rabbinic period. Let's call it, you know, the, the rabbinic period, the Mishnahic period. Let's call it, you know, in the, in the latter first and early second century and on. Why exactly they made such a change, I don't think that anybody can say with absolute certainty. One might note that the rabbis who care a great deal about classification and order make parallel rules vis-a-vis -vis animals. So, uh, so there may be some element of a, of a sense of kilayim, of, of forced uh, mixtures between two unlike things. So, for example, when uh, horses and donkeys, uh, yeah, when horses and donkeys mate, there is a view uh, recited in the Mishnah that uh, that the child uh, is what the mother is. So it's it's the, a, fa a horse father and a donkey mother produce a donkey, and a donkey father and a horse mother produce a, a horse. And there are a number of similar views related in various points in, in rabbinic literature. So perhaps at some level the rabbis are drawing a human parallel that uh, a child is what uh, the status of its mother and there's one way in which that's uh, i think relevant for contemporary life judaism's relatively uh relatively liberal position on the possibility of abortion depends at least in part on a concept called ubar yerach imo that the that the fetus is part of the mother's body and there's a certain kind of ontological logic to that that if a, wo a woman, a female, whether human female or animal female, carries a baby in its womb, uh, then that human mother or animal mother, that, that fetus was part of that mother's body and hence has the status of the mother one way or another. There may be uh, some, some other uh, relevant features that explain the shift from rabbinic law, from biblical law to rabbinic law. Shai Cohen suggests that there's an influence of Roman law, for example, that appears very, you know, appears to have dominant influence on certain Mishnayot. In all events, about 13 lines from the bottom of the A side of the page uh, on 23, I will read you one of the rabbinic articulations of this matrilineal principle, and you'll find it again later in Yevamot and again in Kiddushin, which is probably original, so it belongs to Tractate Kiddushin. The editorial voice, voice of the Talmud asks for a derivation of the principle that uh, that the child of non-Jewish women or slave women do not count as Jews, and it cites the following, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Amar Shimon ben Yochai, Amar Kra, there's a Bible verse. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 says, Do not marry them, don't, 
Don't take their daughters for your sons. Don't give your daughters to their sons. Why? Ki asir epin chameachara. He will, he will uh, dissuade, he will distract your son from following me. Now, this is a complicated little piece of exegesis. The, the phrase in the Bible is frankly a little bit awkward. It's not clear who the he in that sentence. He will distract or dissuade your son from following me. It's possible, there's a certain logic, and this is the view of the Tosafot, that the he in that sentence is uh, your son's non-Jewish father-in-law, but that's not how Rashi reads it. Rashi reads like this, don't give your daughter to them to marry, because when she marries a non-Jewish man, he, the non-Jewish son-in-law, will distract your son, that is your grandson, your Jewish daughter's offspring, from following me. And that's the, that's the exegetical hook here, that your daughter's Gentile-fathered, Gentile-behaving son, your Gentile-behaving grandson, remains your son, that is to say, Israelite, he's still a Jew. Or in the words of the Talmud, Bincha me-Yisraelit karui bincha, your child from a Jewish mother, is called your son no matter what. The ein bincha haba min obedet kochavim karui bincha. But your grandson, who comes from a non-Jewish mother, is not considered bincha, your son, ela bina. But really, that's her son. So the non-Jewish mother can only produce a non-Jewish child. And the late Amor Ravina says that as a matter of law, Shmamina ben bitcha haba min obed kochavim karui bincha. Your grandson with a non-Jewish father is still considered your son. Our page will go and make another couple of interesting points, but I think this is quite interesting. We don't really know why Judaism, why the rabbis uh, seem to have innovated a law of matrilineality, but they certainly do express it here um, and poses all kinds of interesting problems for both Israeli Jews and diaspora Jews in a world where uh, we have, of course, a great deal of intermarriage and we have difficult times figuring out whether uh, modern, modern societies ought to be following this rule, which for its time was probably inclusive, but for our time certainly seems most exclusive. Homer Ladrush, things to think about. Thanks for learning today's page with me, and I look forward to learning with you again tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.